Hello friends, this is Lisa Pankratz in Austin, Texas, and you're listening to Talking Blues. How are things in Austin, Texas these days? Wow. <laughs> you mean overall? <laughs> yeah. Uh, gosh. Um, well, it's... I'm assuming it's much like, you know, many, many cities. It's, uh, there's a large, large portion of it that's shut down and the majority of the, you know, bars and, and music clubs are, are closed and there's a few that are open and trying to have carefully, you know, carefully coordinated shows and things like that. And, uh, and then there are certain other pockets of, of the city where they're, they're just doing what they do, you know? partying and large, large get crowds and, and all, um, you know, there's still a lot of construction going on and yet there's a lot of people also, you know, with very little work and a lot of, a lot of trouble. So I think it's, it's just like many other places, except of course, Austin usually has a, a really vibrant live music scene and that's just really not able to, to happen much. So, so there are, as with many, you know, a lot of live streams and people trying to do what they can uh, online. Can I ask you, like, like, excluding the current events, I know that Austin is very much a music city. Is it a oh, music yeah. city when, um, as a player, is it a great place to be because you have a lot of opportunities? Because I've also heard places like New Orleans where local musicians complain about the fact that because it's a music city, they don't get paid as well. Mm. Well, you know, I, I, I don't pretend to be the the utter representation of that, but there's certainly pluses and minuses to it, you know? Uh, yes, it is true that there, under normal circumstances, there's quite a lot of places to play. Um, and at different times in different places, you can make really decent money, but at the same time, because of a lot of the, you know, maybe the saturation of some of the places or just the, I think the current climate with, just downloads and different things, you know, you have to kind of cultivate those live audiences and Austin's always had one, but, uh, you know, a lot of the younger people, they just, they're not going out to hear music that much. And right. sometimes at the clubs and there are some wonderful clubs here and they, you know, I think to myself frequently, you know, when friends come to town to hear music, I just think, I honestly think there's only so many other cities, maybe in the world, but certainly in the States that, seven nights a week, I could take you out and you could hear some quality music. Now at, you know, are those musicians making a lot of money? Probably not on, not all the time, but, uh, at the same time, you know, there's a lot of, it, there's a music to be made. And, um, I, I'm sure there's an, there's a certain amount of what you're talking about where, yeah, people just, they take it for granted or there's a lot of pluses and minuses, you know, with how you're making the money. I mean, um, you know, there's been a lot of a, what I call a tip jar culture that's grown up in Austin the last several years. And the bad thing about it is I don't like playing for tips. You know, I, I prefer, you know, people to pay money to come see a show and, and see it and not have to ask them during a performance for, for money, you know, right. yeah. uh, it, it feels kind of demeaning at the same time there are a lot of clubs that have just worked that into how they pay people so they can keep having people play. 
mm-hmm. you know. And there are some very generous people at times with with the tips, and that's so you know it's not my favorite system, but sometimes when you're playing locally, that's how it works, and uh, you know it's just one of those things that's come along here in the last few years. I've noticed more uh, with different different places, and depending on the crowds they they cater to, and at the same time, you know I don't love it, and at the same time there is an element to it. Uh, in certain circumstances where it really is sort of a, Hey, we all want this to happen and this is how we can make it happen at, at this moment. So let's do it. You know, they're, they're showing the musicians, the love and the musicians, the musicians, excuse me, are appreciating the, the crowds, you know, right. other times that's not the case. You're like, you're like, Hey, we're up here playing what I, you know, I know is good music. And, you know, you're telling me you don't want to, even throw a dollar, you know, a quarter per band member in a in a bucket, <laughs> yeah. you know, things like that. I don't I don't care for that so much, but uh, you know, there, there is a there is a a certain amount of that that has to that that is going on in in Austin and probably other places too. I get the sense though that as a city, they do respect musicians more than other cities, like having loading zones in front uh, of clubs and well, stuff like yes that. Yes and no. I mean, I. Listen, I mean, I love Austin. I grew up here. I cut all of my musical teeth here. And I will always say I am very much a, a product of Austin and I appreciate it, you know. And this is the place, one of the places where so many people came because they knew they could play music. They could try things. They could do what they wanted and people are going to let them do it and want to hear it, you know. That being said, the, the city has done a lot of trading on that, you know, hard-earned reputation and not always backed it up with you know getting those loading zones that took some fighting mm. you know you know you're like hey i'm i'm not down here you know i'm actually working as well i'm not down here getting drunk like all these kids going to the shot bars you know and i need to be able to get my my implements in and out of a business you know it's it's part of my job as well you know so and and luckily they did that to some degree but yeah it's there have been ridiculous fights about needing to be able to park somewhere to get get in and out of a place or you know or and a lot of that is of course you know on what what is sixth street and that's that's a very that scene has changed a lot but it's a busy street they've started they started blocking it off a few years ago so it's mostly just foot traffic which is probably safer for those kids that are going to the shot bars i guess but uh when you're trying to play music if you've got to get your equipment in and out of a club, it's difficult, you know, and um, sometimes they, they get mad at you because you don't want to have to wait till three o'clock in the morning to leave your job. You know? mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I say that with all the love in my heart because it's a love and it's a, it's a, it's also a profession, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, I'm not just punching a clock, but at the same time, it is a job. And I, I don't, I haven't done that as much in the last few years, but that, you know, that's been my experience. And because there are a few clubs holding on, there used to be quite a few live music clubs down there. Now there's a few that are hanging on trying to keep on having, you know, original bands and, and uh, touring bands and things like that. And, um, you know, it's difficult, but they're trying, you know, mm-hmm. at least they're still trying. <laughs> so uh, you grew up close to Austin. Is that correct? Yeah, I was born in Austin, lived here. I live in Austin now. I, I've lived here till I was about three or three or four. And then we moved out to Dripping Springs, Texas, which 
at that time was further away, it seemed, in the, in the sense that it was very much more the country than it is now. It's, it's almost a suburb, the way everything has grown up in between Austin and, and that area. But, um, but yes, I grew up not too far away. So I know that music was around your house all the time. Your dad is a, was and is a musician. Mm-hmm. Was your mom into music as well? I think she was into it. She loved listening to it, but she was a hairdresser by profession. So I've I've never really seen her play an instrument or or even, you know, sing or anything, but I do think she enjoyed it. She, she liked all the music that was around the house and, uh, you know, records and, and uh, going to hear people play music and things. Yeah. And then your dad was a professional musician. Is that what he did as a, for his living or is it a part time? I mean, off and on off and on his whole life. Yeah. Sometimes full-time and sometimes part-time, um, you know, from the time he was like in junior high school in Austin, <laughs> working on, you know, working in clubs on the East side of Austin and just making money as a, as a drummer. I presume he had a major role in you becoming a drummer. Well, I'm going to say yes, but I don't know how overt it was. Um, I, I, I say yes, because that is something I was familiar with it was part of our world and part of our life, but at no point did he ever actually say to me, you should do this or, you know, take these lessons or, you know, anything like that. It's kind of a funny, I guess it was just sort of an osmosis air that I breathe kind of thing in a way. I mean, I could have just as well, I suppose, wanted to be a hairdresser or whatever else it yeah, would, yeah. would have been. But, um, but yeah, he, he never forced my hand at, at any of it. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was certainly there and something I was into and wanted to learn about. And I've said before, and I, I guess it's still true that that was the, only, I, I tried taking some piano lessons. I never really truly took guitar lessons or anything like that, but, uh, drumming was the only thing I had enough sort of natural instinct for to work at it enough <laughs> to, to get better at it and learn it, you know, um, the other stuff didn't come quite easy enough to me, so I didn't maybe stick with it as long or something, you know. So being a musician himself, did he ever discourage you? Did he ever mm. say, well, this is a tough, tough things to do, or, or was he always... <laughs> no. Okay. You know, honestly, <laughs> we've had very few actual conversations of that, of that nature. Um, we talk about music, especially we talk more now about music than we did when I was a kid, but we, we would listen to music and, you know, he would point out things he he really liked or really didn't like and uh you know he had quite a record collection and uh you know when I was born you know he was 20 so he was really just coming I mean I I don't actually have kids at the at in my in my life and I don't believe I will at this point but uh if I had had kids at age 20 I'm just looking back going oh my gosh all the stuff that was that I was still learning and still ahead of me so he was still you know, figuring it all out and as well as exploring all the music that he wanted to explore, you know. So there you go. I mean, it was, um, I guess what I mean is, yeah, his his tastes and things have influenced me, certainly. And we used to play things and I liked that it gave me a chance to hear a lot of different things. There's a lot of things he didn't like and didn't listen to that I learned about later. But at the same time, I had a, a pretty good, uh, you know, I mean, I would look through his records. I mean, I love, I, I sort of found this collection of 45s and that really I really dove into that but at at the same time I could look through his LPs and you'd you know you'd find Dolly Parton and Metallica and not Metallica I'm sorry Motorhead and uh 
or or maybe you know Baba Olatunje drums of passion and then maybe I you know I don't know Jimmy Reed and and Bill Monroe you know he's just he was into a lot of things you know and uh and that was good for me because it gave me a few reference points without me having to go necessarily hunt a lot of things down it was right there to check out you know do you remember the time I, I know that the drum kit was there and I know you you could always access it but do you remember a moment where you thought wow this is this is such a cool instrument or where, mm. where you made that connection with the drums I actually do strangely enough and it's funny because it wasn't the most of the time there would be a, a drum set around but I think it was more like I would I want to say I was in about sixth grade or or so. And at that time there was a drum kit set up in the house and, and I just had decided I wanted to, to be able to play. And I, I took percussion, you know, with first year you could take, I think band in school was like sixth grade. And, and, uh, so I was learning some of that, thank goodness, you know, learning scales and music and, and things. Cause, uh, you have to learn those kinds of things. Like, marimba and those kinds of scales and things like that to get into the percussion which thank goodness I kind of wish I had stuck with that even more but in any case there was at that time a drum kit set up in our house and I would try to play with records or you know different things and one time I was just kind of I don't even really remember developing any technique except whatever I had learned in those little in those band classes but I was sitting at the drum kit and I remember going between the snare drum and the first tom and the floor tom and it sounding right. And I thought, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's how it, that's how you do that. You know, you're just doing a little pattern and I alternated it up into the tom and, and it seemed like it, it sounded correct. And, and I thought that's how that works. <laughs> it's very strange, but I, I still remember that moment, you know, and uh, I started doing it as much as I could and playing with, records and tapes and you know putting my headphones on and playing along with whatever I could wanted to try to figure out how to play you know and how did playing with others start how did you get into bands and things um gosh uh well that's a good question I think initially um my dad had bands and you know he played a lot of kinds of things a lot of blues swing country all kinds of stuff but uh while i was still in high school he had formed a reggae band and um at that time uh it was called itex and the frontier dub boys <laughs> and uh and uh it had a lot of guys from it uh from what were other really popular texas reggae bands and they got together and made this band but um so they were playing and playing a lot. And whenever I could, I would go play percussion in that band while my dad was playing behind the trap kit, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, that I think was a lot of my first playing with other people. And then beyond that, I was getting real into, uh, you know, roots, rock for lack of a better term, rockabilly, that kind of thing. And, uh, and I liked a lot of different things too, but that was what I was wanting to do. I just wanted to play period, but I even kind of ran a couple of ads. I probably in the Austin Chronicle or something, just trying to find people I could play with. And, um, you know, that actually worked out for a couple of bands that I would do a little rehearsing with. And I started trying to play with a few friends my age who sort of, they would come over to the living room and we'd see if we could figure some songs out. And then I kind of had those, those folks from the, 
a couple of people I met through those kind of ads where I was like, I want to play drummer available, whatever. And that would just be sort of rehearsing, playing in a living room, trying to figure songs out. And, but, you know, pretty soon after that, I started meeting mutual friends who had my, you know, same kind of interest and passion for, uh, you know, rootsy American music. And we wanted to play that kind of music. And, you know, that wasn't necessarily what was top of the charts at that time. So, you know, you started meeting people that were into the kind of stuff you were and wanting to find others that, that could play it, you know? So I started meeting people closer to my age that were into that stuff and uh, started exploring that, going to hear tons of music and as soon as I could, you know? And the other cool thing was in Austin, um, you know, on the one hand, I was getting to play with some friends and we would, you know, I would join their band and, and uh, jam, you know, they'd have a gig and I'd come down and play drums. Uh, but at the same time, I was very fortunate that um, I was going to hear a lot of music and people, you know, you know, for instance, the Leroy brothers in Austin with, you know, great drummer, Mike Buck, who was also in the fabulous Thunderbird stuff, they'd invite me up to, to play, you know, that, oh, we're jamming, come on up, you know, uh, or maybe Mike wanted a break, you know, but so I would get to play with real good musicians and start learning that. And then I was playing with some friends uh, that... We had some bands with, uh, I don't know how specific you want me to get, but, um, you know, I had some friends that would go on to form a band called High Noon. Right. And before that, we we had several offshoot bands and we would play together and or I would go and set in with High Noon uh, on a snare drum because they were a, a trio with an upright bass and I would join in with them. Um, and just, you know, that was what it was. I was going around to clubs to hear as much music as I could. If I got invited to set in, that was fantastic. I started kind of making these friends and, you know, setting in with their bands uh, as they would come and go. And, you know, I would play with them or, uh, and I had a couple, you know, things on my own. And then at the same time, uh, for a brief period during high school, there was a band in Austin in the seventies that played at the famous, uh, the Armadillo World Headquarters Club. Mm -hmm. And of course they played other places as well, but they were started there and they were really big in that world and they were called greasy wheels your and, uncle played uh, in that band my you uncle know? was in that band and so i knew them and uh you know while i was in high school uh some of those folks in that band decided to reunite and have a different version a new version of the band and so they asked me to play drums with them and i did so i i would actually do some gigs with them and then years and years later i actually did a pretty fair amount of recording with them as well. But um, so while I was still in high school, I played with um, a reunited version of Greasy Wheels, which at that time was called St. Greasy's Wheel. I think they just, they changed it back to Greasy Wheels later on. <laughs> um, and that was cool because that was playing real gigs and I was the drummer and it was a fairly, you know, eclectic, but rootsy, uh, you know, style of songs. And, um, and we actually performed um, on, what was a, uh, I can't remember which anniversary it was, but it was an anniversary show for Austin City Limits. Um, and they wanted Greasy Wheels or some version of it to to be included because they were such a big part of that scene. I'm not sure if they had also done a, an Austin City Limits early on. They probably did. Uh, but I got to perform with them for that anniversary program on Austin City Limits. And you were like 17 years old then. Right? Correct, yeah. So yeah. you must yeah. have been really good very early 
Like, did you know? I guess I was good enough. <laughs> do you know? I mean, I, I know that it's a life pursuit, and you're probably still constantly working on your drums. Mm-hmm. But did you? Was there a time when you thought, "Well, I'm not bad at this. Like, I'm pretty mm-hmm. good." I like that way you got the confidence to oh my be. Gosh. Um. No, I don't know where I, I think I got the confidence to do it because the people people I respected as musicians were having me play with them. And I just, you know, I didn't think about it that much. I just knew that we all kind of had a common goal somehow. And, and I felt like I knew how to contribute to it. I mean, uh, at the time. So uh, I just wanted to play so bad. I wasn't really thinking about it in terms of, oh, I'm better than this guy or that guy, or I must be really good. I wasn't really thinking about that specifically. I just knew that I wanted to play this kind of stuff. And, and I liked these people who were playing it. And since they, were having me play, then I thought, all right, we must we must be on the right track here, you know. Do you think you can articulate what that experience, what you learn from an experience like that? Like when you're sitting there with these musicians who are, um, let's say, one or two levels above where you're at musically, and you get a chance to sit sit in with them, play one or two songs, and you know that they're really, really good. Uh-huh. What, you're asking, what do you learn by? Yeah, like, oh, yeah. What do you walk away with, and you, you, why are you sitting there going, "Wow, these guys are good." Yeah. Oh, that. Well, I think you do get a, a touch of confidence that you know. Again, they wouldn't ask you to play if they didn't feel like you could come up and do the job, right? And, and that maybe they'd have a little fun as well. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not like school. It's not like, all right, it's time for you to set in now. It's, you know, they they don't want to not have fun on their own gig. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. So it, believe me, there are times you don't really want everybody who's there who could set in to set in, uh, but uh, but by doing that, absolutely, you learn a little bit of what it's like to be in the engine room of a band. You you learn what it's like to pay attention to each other. At least, uh, you know, well, what is this guy going to do on the guitar? Is he going to go around again? And what does that mean? You need to do and. Um, is this a song you know? Is it a song you better learn? Is it a song you've heard before? You know, um, if it's none of the above, can you catch the groove well enough to to get in there and make something happen that's that sounds good? You know, and uh, I mean, I, I it just uh, you you're, you can pick up a lot if you're if you want to, you know, and if you don't want to, I think that's that's going to be a problem down the line. At least it is. It would be for me for for future. I don't know how much of that is learned and how much of that is instinct, but right. um, it does surprise me sometimes how much how much some people really don't look around or really don't actually listen to what else is going on on stage or in the band. Uh, but the really good people that I've gotten to play with certainly do, you know. At what point did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Did you know at 17 when you played at the Austin City Limits that you, this, yeah. is, this is your career? Sort of, kind of, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I mean, you did go to Rice University for English literature, right? I I did. Um, I did because I. I don't want to say I did because I could, but the fact of the matter is, I I told myself if I don't do this now, I'll never go back and do it, and I I don't necessarily know that that was the best choice in the sense that. Maybe I, if I'd started concentrating a little harder, a little sooner on music, that would have been probably good. But at the same time, you know, it sort of is what it is. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading and 
uh, it was actually, I, I really wasn't a person who had that much just internal fire, except that I knew I wanted to play music and I wanted to play drums. And I didn't want to have to play too much stuff I didn't like, which is not to say I don't want to, you know, expand myself or learn things or whatever, but I wasn't like, oh, I, I just, you know, I liked rootsy music of many, many kinds that, that to my mind wasn't really what was popular. And so I wanted to play what I wanted and I, I wasn't looking at it just in terms of, I better learn, I'm sure what I'm trying to say, but I liked a lot of things and I wanted to play music and I knew that in the back of my mind the whole time, but I kept telling myself, I might also have to do this or, you know, this was the only thing I really felt like taking that many classes in, to be honest. So I kept telling myself, well, perhaps if I had to, I could, I could be an editor or I could do something, something. I didn't ever really have a concrete idea of what that supposed fallback thing was going to be. <laughs> and uh, once I've, I always played when I could during school. I played, I had my drums at school and there was a basement in our, they're called colleges at Rice, not dorms, but it's a similar thing. And I had my drums set up down there as soon as I could. And I would go down there and play whenever I could. And then if my friends would, who were already playing music would come through town, I'd go see them and maybe set in with them. And um, similarly, you know, when I would go, I would always go home for the summer uh, from Houston back to Dripping Springs, Texas. And I would play as much as I could, whether it was with my dad's band or my friend's bands or bands that I was working on having on my own um, with uh, other members of that, you know, scene and some of those other bands and things. Um, so I played as much as I could then and I graduated, moved back, and I did do a few temp jobs that you had to have a, a degree to do, um, you know, <laughs> but for the most part, I started playing music and then just started playing it as much as I could. Uh, and luckily, you know, I had a lot of friends and, you know, we had that same kind of passion and uh, that led to meeting people that led to getting pretty busy as a drummer, both touring and not. And at the same time, luckily, that music scene in Austin was such that there was a lot of young bands that were exploring lots of different kinds of stuff at that time, you know, sort of the roots music scene, whether it was the more traditional version of it or the sort of punk rock edge version of it. And the clubs were were having, they were providing places for them. You know, there was a lot of great clubs in the certainly the 70s and 80s and up into the 90s in Austin. How, how important was it for you to get out but, of Austin? But to answer your question, though. Uh, Sorry. No, no, I just realized um, at a certain point, I just started working harder at playing more and not so much looking for part-time temp jobs. You know, just I just quit fooling myself that I was going to try to do anything else. <laughs> and... Uh, and so luckily there was enough stuff for me to try to do. Uh, and you, you asked me how important was it for me to get out of Austin? Not get out of Austin, but when you, when you started, and I presume like most musicians, you try to make a name for yourself or keep working mm -hmm. in the local scene. Right. But having well, said, yeah, yeah uh, and then hopefully establishing yourself. And when it's a, a musical town like Austin, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot Absolutely. of opportunities. But was there a conscious effort to say, I'm going to go to the next step and go on tour. Um, no, that wasn't a conscious effort. Uh, but I'm glad that I got to do it. Um, and I did do it. And, uh, and I, you know, I had a couple of different kind of 
what I would call phases, but you know, of, of doing that more than than not. Um, uh, and I'm very, very glad that that opportunity came along. And my first real touring opportunity um, was with Ronnie Dawson, um, right. a, a great roots rocker from Texas who who had a really great sort of second act, or what really more of a third act. But um, I started touring with him. Uh, initially with the trio High Noon and then with a couple of, you know, different versions of that band. And I did that for several years and um, that was really great. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't easy peasy. It wasn't what you'd call, you know, cushy touring, but we loved it. We loved him. We loved the energy and what we thought we were going to bring something intense and special to the show every single night. And, uh, and so starting out with that, I got to do a lot of really amazing things. I got to establish a lot of really amazing, uh, you know, musical relationships and start playing some clubs that I would still be playing 20 years later with, with other people or, or venues, larger venues too. Um, and I uh, just learned a lot about playing with other musicians and what's expected of you and, you know, how to be a pro on the road and, uh, you know, things like that. Can you give me an example of what you might have learned that you thought, wow, this is an important lesson for me to know about being a pro. Oh, well, I mean, you know, some people learn it, some people don't. And uh, some people don't ever have to learn it because they're just so amazingly good that people are going to make up for it all the time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you show up on time. <laughs> you know you're, you know you're, you hone your skill, you practice, but you also know your parts. You know, you don't go get now. Now, listen, don't mistake what I'm saying to say that nobody ever parties or, you know, Hey, I love bands and I love being bands. But at a certain point, if you don't get your act together, you can't just go get drunk every night, miss a show, you know, whatever you have, it has to function, right. you know? And, uh, and I think for the most part, you have to get up, take it up a notch. You know, you might start out when you're super young and you're really just looking to play rock and roll and party and stuff like that. And at the same time, you know, the really great ones, you, the bottom line is really the music and you've got to be there. And, and when it comes to that kind of thing, you know, Ronnie wasn't wasting any time, you know, he'd, he'd been through every, literally every phase of pop music and rock and roll. And he, he loved that, resurgence that he had and he wasn't ever going to give an audience less than 110 percent and you know to make that happen you don't always get that back but you got to try you know you get there on time you expect the club to have the stuff you need for the show and and you try to give that back as well you know now but don't i'm not trying to be a little you know t too goody two shoes about it but the fact is you got to know what to expect and be able to provide right the professional service, quote unquote, you know, act right. If, even if you are, a, if you're going to be a drunk, at least be able to play, you know, please don't be one. But at the same time, you just got to, you know, be a pro basically. But does anybody tell you this? I mean, obviously, Ronnie, who had a, a career that... <laughs> well, some people would tell you this, like, <laughs> you're, you're, if you don't get your act together, you're fired. Right. But, right. you know, at the same time, if I want, if I talk about myself specifically, you know, not so much like I wasn't just out right, necessarily right. freelancing. And for the most part, these were good friends of mine, and we we all really felt a little bit of a sense of mission, you know. And yeah, it got hard sometimes, but you know, you'd kind of sort of 
punch each other up a little bit like, hey, what's going on? Or, hey, let's, for the most part, you didn't have to say it because everybody was pretty in, into making it right, you know, making it good. Right. And, uh, uh, but, you know, other, other circumstances and other, other times you're just like, okay, hey, you know, there are, t- it just depends on the, the situation. You know, sometimes there is a situation where uh, somebody will literally mentor a young, a young person. I think Ronnie did that quite a bit for Nick Curran, who's, you know, a really wonderful musician and guitar mm-hmm. player, also drummer and singer. I mean, he, he could do it all. He was super young when he started playing. And then at a certain point he came and started playing with Ronnie. And I think even Nick would say that Ronnie was a great mentor for him, both in professionalism and musicianship and all that. Non, I'm not certainly his only one. And Nick went on to do great things mm-hmm. on his own, but I, even he would, you know, so in that sense, yeah, I mean, um, but so I'm not talking about, I'm talking about kind of a close friendship and, you know, a scene that really tried to support each other and, and, um, not to speak for Nick, but I think he did mention that he would mention that always what a genuine appreciation and love and friendship he had for Ronnie and Ronnie, I think wanted to help him. You know, I'm sure that he would have recognized something of himself in a young 17 year old guitar player who was, you know, trying to make a career. Right. So if Ronnie, I'm not really familiar with Ronnie's career, although I've seen some videos of him performing. Um, He said, this is kind of like his second. Yeah, he was, you know, he was a teenage, not really idol, but, you know, his dad was in the Light Crest Doughboys, one of the proto-typical early on Western swing bands. And so his dad was a musician. And uh, Ronnie, at one time, was the young, uh, I think they were trying to keep take that band into the, into the more modern era. So they got him to play and be their sort of young teenage rocker guy in the band, you know. Right. But he, he also made some really great 45s and rock and roll records in the fifties. Uh, and, and then at one point they were kind of grooming him to be more of a teen idol guy. And he used different names at different times, but he made some killer rock rockabilly and rock and roll records in the fifties and kind of bluesy records. And then, you know, in the sixties, you know, he was just about to be, I think kind of marketed as a young kind of crooner guy. And that that's when the uh, payola scandal hit and a lot of that stuff kind of got, you know, the carpet pulled out from under a lot of acts and including Ronnie and he, uh, he was back in Dallas and he, he was a studio musician there, an excellent studio musician, played on a lot of things, played drums on the original recording of Hey Baby by Bruce Chanel, hmm. uh, played drums on Hey Paul, Hey Paula, you know, was a big part of the Dallas, Texas recording scene. And, uh, and then eventually he played in a kind of a folk band uh, called the Levy Singers, and they were extremely popular. He had a kind of proto country rock band called Steel Rail, uh, with a lot of guys who would go on and play in some other sort of bigger versions of of bands like that. And then uh, always was a studio musician of some kind. And at a certain point, and I don't want to get the names wrong, and I apologize if I do. Um, I want to say maybe Barney. I can't say his last name, but you know these guys were reissuing these records and these record collector young people were finding all these records from the fifties. And they kind of went to him and said, you know, are you Ronnie Dawson, you know, from rock and bones and action packed. And this and I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, you want to basically said, do you want to start making some records? And so he said, yeah. And you know, they started, they got some of the best of the, the current 
roots musicians, you know, and again, I don't want to miss anybody or say anybody wrong, but I mean, you know, uh, Eddie Angel from Straight Jackets, although that was way before that, and uh, Charco Jean playing guitar, and uh, I'm, I think Brian Neville playing drums, and a lot of the guys from the Toe Rag Studios over in, in London, you know, started making records with him where he would do his version of, you know, covers. They would find old songs for him. He'd put his stamp on them or they'd write songs. And he made some of the most, I, I think some of the best, you know, current, this would have been, I believe, you know, eighties and nineties, but right. current for the day, roots, rock and roll, rockabilly, hillbilly, blues type of stuff. You know, most of the time you get guys that, you know, sometimes you had hits in the fifties and they don't even really seem to understand what they were doing at the time. And they come out and you're lucky if they, you can get them to sing their hit. Now, not all of them by any means, but, uh, but with Ronnie, it was never that way. He was always a musician, always a working musician of some kind and a great rock and roller and just an amazing showman, you know, putting on his performance. And, uh, and so once he, came back and start, he started he not only made good records that, that stand up next to any of the classic records you know he went out and toured them and you know festivals all over the world touring in the u.s uh you know i i had the honor and pleasure of playing with him at at uh, the carnegie hall the wild recital hall part of a series of music and we were representing um texas music that night and we had ronnie dawson mingo saldivar td bell and irby bowser representing the, the sort of Tejano and blues and roots rockabilly music um, of Texas. Wow. And I'm, uh, that's one of the greatest, one of my most cherished memories is getting to do that. And that was with me and the band High Noon uh, backing up Ronnie. And we actually ended up getting to back up some of the other guys on, on a big jam at the end. And it was just fantastic, you know. At Carnegie Hall. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that was, you know, honestly pretty early on. And, and I was like, wow, this is this is great. <laughs> if it's all, you know, you never need, you never know where you're going to go from there. But uh, we, we had a fabulous time and I, I felt honored to get to be you know, part of that. And um, so, you know, that, that was my pro probably not perfect, but quick synopsis of Ronnie Dawson. And uh, I mean, the guy was just a great rock and roller, you know, he, and the good thing about him too, was that he, he's a really good guitar player and he really knew how to lead a band he really knew how to work up parts, but he always had a second. He would always have a second guitar player, and he really knew how to weave parts between the two, you know. And and um, that was just it was really really fun to play with him. And and I'm not the only one, uh, you know. He knew how to pick out good guys. He no, no matter where he was. And we we were a pretty steady band for quite a few years, but he always had good players playing with him. Well, that must have been such an amazing experience, just musically and 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 otherwise. Absolutely. It was, it was really a, a blessing, you know, and you know, my friends um, in high noon were very much record collectors and, you know, there was other bands out there going on big Sandy, Dave and Deke combo, great bands from Britain, the planet rockers at the time. And, um, you know, they had done some playing with Ronnie as well. Um, but they wanted to do a show in Austin and high noon said, yeah, let's, let's actually, I think our friend Ted Roddy was one of the first guys who brought Ronnie down from Dallas to do a show at the continental club in Austin, Texas. And, uh, and so I'm not sure if it was that same night or another night, but, um, these are just, these are really talented musicians in their own right who have a real deep love and knowledge of the history of 
all of this kind of music. And so I've gotten to learn so much, you know, gosh, I, we all used to joke that Ted Roddy's work tapes were the best work. You know, you'd, you'd listen to them for fun, not just to learn songs, you know, cause he wrote great songs, but he had such a depth of knowledge of, uh, of the music. And, you know, but in any case, point being Ronnie wanted to do an, a show in Austin uh, with High Noon. And he said, well, we're going to need a drummer. And they said, we know one. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we got together to rehearse. And uh, I think he might have took a quick little pause when he realized I was young and female. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't take much. We, we started playing and it felt great. And, um, you know, to, to quote a cliche, the rest is history. You know, we had a really, really fun show. We always felt comfortable playing together. And uh, I think that was partly because I was so comfortable playing with the High Noon guys. My friend Kevin Smith was the bass player and he's currently playing with Willie Nelson. Hmm. But at the time, you know, that was his main band was High Noon. And he and I had a real copacetic locking in and together and, you know, finding ways to work around each other and work with each other and, you know, throw little accents in here and there without getting off the groove, you know, that kind of thing. It's just a lot of fun and, you know, hand in a glove in a way. And I think for Ronnie, it felt like, oh, this is comfortable, you know, and we can, we can do stuff with this, you know? So another, so that's a neat moment because that kind of changed your life, right? Like mm -hmm. it, oh, it gave a, you an opportunity. In many ways, it absolutely did. Yeah. I mean, I was playing, I was doing things, uh, but that opened up a world to me that has just been, you know, really was the world I was looking for kind of, you know, in some, in some way. Right. Okay. So another example of moments changing your life would be, I would presume the moment when you recorded an album with the derailers and Dave Alvin. In a way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, produced the yes. album, right? So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I like I, I maybe you could tell the story, but basically you work with Dave Alvin now, but he produced mm -hmm. this album many years ago and right. remembered your playing at one point. And when he I think so, yeah, um, yes and no. Uh, I mean, that was cool for me because about the time I was one of you know I was one of many derailers drummers at the time, but I did play with them for several years and I made that jackpot record with them and. Uh, I just say that because it was, they've had two or three really excellent drummers. But before that, it was really a rotating, uh, <laughs> it was like the spinal tap of country music, <laughs> drum seat, exploding drummers. But, um, but, uh, but anyways, yes, I was playing with those guys and I was really loving that style of Texas dance hall and Bakersfield style um, country music, you know, where it was hardcore country, but at the same time, maybe had a little extra energy, maybe a little a little rock and roll spirit in there, you know? So I really loved that. And, uh, you know, it was, it was hard at the time I was actually playing with them and Ronnie and that made it hard to be, you know, sort of 100% committed to them at the time. And hmm. at the same time, uh, yes, they were making this album and they had Dave producing it. And, um, I, yeah, we met, I believe that's when we met. I mean, I had seen the blasters. Um, I, I think I saw them, I'm not sure if I actually got to see them while Dave was still in the band. I definitely saw them later, but I was aware of Dave for sure. And, uh, and we met during that time and, and, and that was fine. Um, but it didn't, it didn't go a whole lot past that. I, I don't know really what 
particularly he remembered or or not <laughs> about that. I mean, I certainly remembered you know, doing that recording. Um, but then um, it is kind of a good, it is a great sort of full circle thing though, because yes, I love that Bakersfield stuff. I met Dave playing w- with the derailers. And then years later, you know, I had still been working and I'm, I'm sure to some degree, Dave was aware of that. And at the same time, what really came around was, uh, I mean, Dave had a, he did so much, you know, he all with the guilty men and his bands and gosh, just an amazing career. And, um, but there was a period of time where, you know, things were changing and, uh, you know, one of his very best friends, Chris, Chris Gaffney had passed away and, um, he was just kind of, I think, wanting to try something different. And that uh, festival called Hardly Strictly Bluegrass in, in San Francisco was coming around. And uh, Dave got it in his head that he wanted to gather up a lot of his favorite women musicians to do that show. Because he would always try to come up with something different every year. Um, he's played, I think, almost every one of those Hardly Strictly festivals. And uh, I'm sure he tries to do something different every time he does it. And in this case, he wanted to do that. And I knew, I think, three of the women he was talking to. And one was my my friend, the great bass player, Sarah Brown. And uh, the other was my friend, Amy Ferris, who is also from Austin and, and Cindy Cashdollar. And then I was had the pleasure of meeting several other, these, these wonderful singers and players um, that Dave knew and had put together. And um, Sarah called me saying, hey, Dave, Dave wants to do this set, you know, and, and get all these people. And, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a shoestring budget, but I was like, I want to do it for sure. And it, it really lucked out because, um, my husband who has been a, it wasn't my husband then, but, uh, he was going to be out there anyway. He's played with many people. And at that time was, uh, he was playing with Jerry Jeff Walker and it just worked out for the same festival. And so I said, yes, I can get myself out there. Let's do it. And so I got to join in with this, this outfit, um, that, that Dave put together for that show. And, uh, including Lori Lewis and Christy McWilson and uh, Nina Gerber and a wonderful traditional, f- um, oh my gosh, uh, uh, accordion player whose name I, I apologize, I cannot think of at this moment. I just met her on that day, you know, and um, and and we had Sarah, me, and 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 Amy and and Cindy, and I I certainly felt like the odd man out at that moment because I I felt like I I hadn't really been I mean, I was kind of in awe with all these people and I was a little bit in awe of Dave and I was aware of Dave and at the same time, you know, not as familiar with a lot of his stuff. And I suddenly realized I'm, I'm about to play with him in front of 5,000 people who really know his music, you know, and, and literally we flew out there, we gathered up in a tent behind the stage for about 30 minutes and just ran over a few little things and then went up on stage and played, you know, it wasn't like I, I had a chance to, you know, thoroughly absorb the entirety of Dave Alvin's, uh, you know, catalog. Right. So how do you go up on stage? Uh, like what's, what's, well, what, how? I tell you, I was really nervous right. and I had done my best to, you know, figure out what songs were almost certainly going to be played. I, I mean, he probably told me a few and I don't think he wanted to be kind of bound by any kind of rigid, you know, set or anything like that either. And, um, so we ran over a few things backstage and, you know, I got up on stage and we, I was playing, you know, it was supposed to be relatively acoustic and I was playing a pretty minimal kit. Um, but 
Dave is going to rock at some point. There is no question. I mean, I've, I've watched him do this over and again. He's a great acoustic guitar player and everything else. He can accompany himself beautifully, but if he has half a chance, you know, things are going to take off at a certain point. And I love that. Um, but I got up and I, I, maybe I made a couple of little small mistakes and, and, uh, but we were still, you know, I was nervous, but I was having fun and we were playing something. I don't remember which song, but I just thought, you know, there's no point in me doing this if we're not going to have fun. And Dave played something and I just answered him. I just did some little kickback and he just turned around to me with the biggest grin. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, we're going to be fine. You know, we're going to be fine because he wants you to play. He wants to hear your expression as well, because he, it, it, it all, it goes without saying, you've got to trust somebody that they're not going to go overboard. But so once you've established the sort of trust and, and the baseline, he wants to hear what you've got to say, you know, and it's, it's, it's pretty great. So we had a, we ended up having a really good time on that day and people dug it and they said, Hey, you guys should make it a CD. So we did and recorded that in Austin, like the, just a month or two later and ended up touring on that for a couple of years. And then, um, you know, a little time went by and Dave made another record and, uh, you know, he kind of, puts that together. He was using quite a few different people out there. And then he realized, well, I've got to tour with it. And uh, he had come to see uh, Brad and I were playing in Austin, uh, I believe at Jenny's Little Longhorn. And we just lost Jenny. God bless her. Just a sweet lady and really an encourager of music. But anyway, from what Dave tells me, uh, he and Christy came to see us play in, in Austin and really liked how we played together and, you know, kind of watched us worked through a lot of different type of things and, and dug it. So when he was putting the touring band together in about 2011, he called and said, Hey, would you guys be interested in this? And, um, we said, absolutely. Yes. And so in some form or another, you know, we've been touring with Dave since 2011 and, you know, made several CDs with him, and, uh, it's been fantastic. And it's, you know, and, and I know that, you know, Dave, Dave, he was interested at one time in trying to produce a Ronnie Dawson record and that didn't happen, but you know, there's a lot of kind of beautiful full circle of, you know, this kind of roots music family that that kind of circles around sometimes. And, and um, it's, it's been great. So when, when these life changing moments happen and when we're talking more than one, but you do a gig and that leads to many other op opportunities, mm -hmm. I mean, do you approach things differently because of that kind of experience? Like, are you more open-minded about things and trying things? You mean in general? Yeah, or? in general. Like, because the gig that you did in San degree. Francisco could have been just yeah. a one-off and it would have been one yeah. great gig and you would have had fun. But that mm -hmm. turned into a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, sure. I'm never going to... I think you have to be open to some of that. You know, I... Um, I'm not 100% I'm not sure what, what you're asking. Like, would I have just had that gig, had fun and said, oh, no, thank you. I don't want to tour. No, no, no. I'm asking, like, if you're more open to doing things. Oh, because, because of those kind of good experiences yeah. that have come out of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I think you've got to be open to that kind of thing. You know, sometimes it doesn't go quite so fun and you go, okay, I don't think I want to do any more of that. <laughs> and then other times you just like, you're like, Oh, I'm so glad that I got to do that. I'm so glad I met these people. And I'm so, you know, at some point that may circle around again and, and you'll go, Hey, we did that together. I think, you know, we know we can work together and let's, let's try this other new thing that's going to happen. You know, 
one of the things, one of the articles I was reading about you and, and Dave Alvin, and it mentioned your 1968 Ludwig kit that resides in mm. L.A. It does right now, yeah. <laughs> tell, and this is one of your favorite drum kits, correct? It is, yeah. So mm -hmm. tell me about your relationship with your drum kit. <laughs> well, um, with, with that one in particular, I guess, um, I mean, I... I've always, I, I started out when I was younger. My dad always had older, you know, he, older kits, um, but he's had plenty of modern kits as well. I've just always gravitated toward the older kits. Okay, for I like somebody their who style. doesn't, I like their. For somebody who doesn't, who doesn't I'm know. talking about, and I guess for me that's sort of, I'm not going to blow anything off, but you know, I'm talking 70s and before. I tend to prefer 60s Ludwigs and I just like how they sound. I like how they look. I like how they feel. But I like, I appreciate all kinds of different, you know, uh, I, I find it all wonderful and interesting. You know, I love to see kits from the 20s and 30s. I loved it. You know, my current kit right now is a 1958 WFL that I'm gigging around Austin and, and, and otherwise with, because for the time being, my touring kit is locked up in, in LA because there's no touring. Right. Um, and that's a 1968 Ludwig, Ludwig kit. And um, I just like them. I like how they sound. I like how they feel. Um, I think it, it gets me way closer into the ballpark of, uh, you know, the, the type of sounds I want to hear coming back at me. Although I've certainly played modern kits that I thought were magnificent, Tama kits, uh, DW kits. That's just not so much my my preference, you know. And of course, I'll adjust that some, to some degree to the to the type of music uh, if I feel like it's necessary. But I've sort of, in some ways, for myself, maybe to sort of distill it. This may not be completely right, but you know, I sort of have taken my my stuff. I've gotten what I like. I've gotten it distilled down, and I try to make as much out of that as I can, as opposed to looking for a different tool for every single job and um i generally play a four-piece ludwig kit with a most of the time a 13 inch sometimes a 12 inch tom and a 16 inch floor tom and a 22 inch kick and of course i've i've played different sizes of different things and i've loved them too but that's my go-to that's my standard i feel like i like to try to get as many different sounds out of those particular drums as i can i like to get as many different kinds of sounds out of my cymbals as i can Although I do, I do have different kinds of symbols and I'll think, oh, I need that one for this, you know, but rather than trying to bring in a different thing for every little thing, I try to get as many sounds as I can out of my, my standard stuff, you know, and I've been playing a, for the forever, I played a, a 68 Ludwig Superphonic, um, but the last few years I've been playing this um, hammered steel Gretsch drum that's a little, it's a little odd, but it, I just love it. And I, a friend of mine put it together. He put some Yamaha wood hoops on it. So it's, it doesn't match my kit in the in the vintage sense at all, but I just it has a really nice warm feeling that the the wood hoops kind of temper the hammered steel shell and and uh, that had that's been my my primary gigging and drum for for quite a few years. I wouldn't have expected that, but there it is. So yeah. I, I, you know, how long does it take for one to know this is the drum kit that or this is the sound this is the kit that I want. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I guess. And, uh, and does it change? I mean, I have other kits and I like them. And yes, it changes. But, uh, you know, for that one, 
I like it. It's quirky, but I kind of know the quirks. It, it probably needs a little work, but at the same time, you know, uh, it's not in such amazing shape that I'm, I'm unwilling to throw it in the back of a van and drive hundreds of miles with it. You know, it's not a museum piece by any means. Um, at the same time, it, the more you play something, I mean, I, I think that's, we always joke. I joke my, my friends, the guitar players that are playing old beat up guitars and I go, Hey, you know, they make new ones of those. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but the point being, you know, you, there's a, once you have put your little sweat and work into something enough, it, it has a language that just comes right back to you that you appreciate and know and can count on and, and they come and they go. It's certainly not, it's not like you're only after ever one, you're not, it's not necessarily a quest for the one kit, you know, it's just that I do have a a good go-to. I, I look forward. I love, sometimes I love playing backline kits at different things because I get to try out different, different symbols and drums and hear things back that, you know, aren't that easy to just go experiment and find and play, you know? Uh, but at the same time, you want to know when you, when you've got something you you're out there to show people and play for people, you want to have a baseline that you can work from that you, that you're confident in, I guess. And how quickly do you know? Like, if you go to a festival and you just bring your snare, yeah, and and you're using oh, a kit you've never used, uh, how quickly do you know that this is going to work or this is going to be difficult? Very quickly. <laughs> um, I I I can I can tell. There's only if you're playing a festival like that. There's usually only so much time in between, and sometimes I'm using my own kit, and sometimes it's just really not possible. Or I would say most of the time these days stuff they've got up there is usually just fine. And sometimes they even, you know, will provide me something very similar to what I'm, I usually play. But if it's one of these things where they just, they have what they have and you can play it or not, or there's no time to change it again, most of the time I can tune it enough to, to make it sound pretty good. And I know that by the time it gets out in the middle of hundreds and thousands, not, not hundreds of thousands, but you know, hundreds or thousands of people, <laughs> uh, by the time it gets out in the middle of that, it, it really is almost in the uh, the sound person's hands because it's sometimes it's not going to make that much difference. Sometimes it does when you're lucky and all the sound people and your band and this stuff is all hitting on the same same cylinder. But at the same time, you know, I'll get up there and quickly check out something and say, okay, they've got these kinds of heads on it. They've got uh, some particular kind of shell that's maybe sounds good to my ears. Maybe it doesn't. So I'll do a try to do a quick tuning job. Uh, on whatever the toms are. Sometimes I use their snare, but you know, most of the time I use my snare and cymbals at least. Um, and most of the time I can get it to a place where I know this is going to work just fine. And it, and, and especially if I'm touring with Dave, we've been doing this show and we've been touring a lot and, you know, I can make those things sound appropriate to what he's going to do. But, you know, it, it, if you're suddenly talking about an entirely different act, then that would probably require different sounds that you're really looking for. But, but if it's a, a particularly awkward thing that I might tell myself, okay, I'm going to veer away from my usual fills on the rack tom because in this 15 minute changeover, I'm not going to tune this thing to a place where I really like it very much. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's, that's honestly not as common these days, but, um, but if you have to, you know, yeah, sometimes that'll happen. And how different is, is the setup for your studio work versus your live work? Like if you're going in to record an album next week, would you mm -hmm. bring your 68 it, Ludwigs? It's honestly, um, it depends. I have a, a newer Ludwig kit that I use a lot for studios that I've kind of pur purposely saved, set aside for that. It also really depends on 
the type of music that we're playing. Um, some studios have house kits that I think sound fantastic. And if it's, if, but if I'm looking for a certain kind of sound, then I'll bring my stuff in. I almost always start with my personal baseline, which is a four piece kit, snare, one rack tom, one floor tom. And if I need to enhance that, I will, but you know, I usually start with that. And, you know, from, for the most part, it's pretty rare that I have to add to that. Sometimes I play considerably less than that. And um, if it's a particularly rootsy act, then maybe I bring in my older drums or I bring in my, my 1960 Slingerland kit that's a little bit smaller and I try to go with just like an overhead. Just it, But if it's a more modern sounding thing or it's a modern you know rock or country or something like that, then very often these days the studios have kits that are tuned up to a place where they really like them in that studio and they sound great. Um, but frequently I'll bring in either my, my newer Ludwig kit, Maple Classic, or I'll bring in my 68s and they give me that kind of nice warm down the middle sound. And more often than not, it pleases the, the, the engineers and the, the people that are hiring you, you know, right. it's always a balance between the people. They hire you because they, they know, you know what you're doing and they like what you do. But at the same time, uh, if it's not, for lack of a better term, my band, then if somebody's hiring me and they've got something they really want to hear, then I'm going to do it for them. You know. Um, I'm going to wrap this up by asking you one final question. Okay. You've you've had, I mean, you've been working constantly and you've worked with some great people. What is it? What do you, I've been fortunate. Yeah, I, but I, I don't know. Is it fortunate? I, I've loved so many of the people I've gotten to play with, and I've, I've really. You know, I think about that frequently. You know, I've really had a nice balance of getting to play a lot and for the most part, getting to play with people I, I not only respect, but I like. <laughs> right. But I don't know if this is a fair question, but if I was to ask you, what is it about you hmm. and, and perhaps the way you play or the way you act or the way you are that hmm. that has given you these opportunities that, that Dave Allen would say, hey, I want to work with her uh, or... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Well, I definitely, I think you'd have to ask Dave that <laughs> right. question, but um, I hope it's that, you know, I, if I'll take a swing, um, you know, I try to show up with a good attitude. I try to show up looking to, you know, with your act together and, you know, looking to do a good job and, and have fun, uh, you know, show up complaining about something right out of the gate, you know, right. and at the same time, I, I do think that primarily, you know, you, I hope I have some perspective so I can bring some vocabulary and some musicality to whatever we're trying to do, whether it's original songs or uh, whether it's covers, you know, you'll, if you have a handle on certain styles, for me, I hope it's that I, you know, I, I try to be, I try to play to the song, I, you know, if it needs a gentle touch or, if, you know, you, to listen to the song and what's going on and, um, if it's a, you know, four to the, you know, just if it's a rock and roll freak out, then that's fine. But if it's a beautiful ballad and it needs, you, you listen to the words and punctuate it appropriately, I guess. And, and, uh, um, maybe it's just, I hope I bring a sense of musicality, but with a sense of strength, you know, that that's my goal. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm not, I, I, that's a hard thing to answer, like on the, on the fly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all, it's awkward to talk about some of that stuff, but I hope, 
you know, that there's a sense of musicality there as well as a sense of just good old gut punching rhythm. <laughs> well, I know, you know, so well, no, <laughs> <laughs> but I know when I saw you perform, I mean, there's a presence about you live mm. that, and I don't know if it's confidence, but you know, one is drawn to, to you mm. when, when I, I you oh. know, when I watched you with Dave Albin, it was just like, Oh, oh there's a drummer oh. I noticed. So, I mean, obviously right. the, there's a presence. But hopefully not in a bad way. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. In a great way. <laughs> if you're just like, what's that drama doing? <laughs> I don't think so. Lisa, thank you so much for doing this. It's oh, it's because it's of that. Pleasure. that um, thank that, you for your patience. We've been trying to do this for <laughs> for a while, haven't we? Yes, but that's fine. It was all worth it. Worth the wait. So Wonderful. thank you very I'm much glad. for doing this. Thanks a lot. Well, Happy New Year, happy to, New Year to, to us all, I hope. And... Uh, and um, I look forward to hearing more of your program. I, I wasn't familiar with it before, but it looks like you've got a lot of great things recorded. So I'm, I'm honored to be included. Thank you. Well, thank you.